Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Where's Your Head At? Where we'll discuss a recently released expert consensus statement on the perioperative management of adult patients undergoing head and neck surgery and free tissue reconstruction. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. In July 2021, Anesthesia and Analgesia published an article titled Expert Consensus Statement on the Perioperative Management of Adult Patients Undergoing Head and Neck Surgery and Free Tissue Reconstruction from the Society for Head and Neck Anesthesia. The authors point out in their introduction that there has been little guidance regarding anesthesia for these patients thus far, and that training experiences within different institutional culture has been the mainstay of practice, which we could say is the same for many areas of what we do. (laughs) Um, Kate, can you tell us how they develop these guidelines? I sure can. The leadership of the Society for Head and Neck Anesthesia, or SHANA, nominated 16 members of the society, both anesthetic and surgical, to develop guidance for the best practice during the perioperative care of adult patients undergoing free tissue transfer for reconstruction during head and neck surgical procedures. Now, it should be noted that all authors work in the United States of America across 11 institutions and the vast majority of the authors are male. They did, however, generate meaningful topic questions under a PICO framework, conduct a literature search and systematic review, and use the results along with a modified Delphi method to develop guidance supported by clinical expertise and evidence, if available. The guidelines contain 14 consensus statements which are categorised by the phase of care. So let's kick off with the preoperative considerations. We will shorten the term expert consensus statement to ECS. ECS1 is... Perioperative nutritional assessment and intervention may improve outcomes in this patient population. So due to a mass obstructing or compressing the upper digestive tract, head and neck cancer patients are often malnourished. Mm. When treated with an individualised assessment as well as oral feeding or artificial feeding is necessary, this can lead to a reduction in the length of hospital stay, infection rate and the incidence of wound dehiscence. ECS2 states preoperative tobacco cessation is beneficial for this patient population. Now, we are all aware of the benefits of ceasing smoking pre-anesthesia, namely decreased cardiopulmonary complications, reduced airway reactivity during anesthesia, reduced postoperative pneumonia and respiratory failure, and improved wound healing. In particular relevance to free flaps, tobacco smoking contributes to vascular and thrombotic alterations which threaten microvascular anastomoses. Ceasing smoking just three weeks preoperatively significantly improves wound healing and after several months, complication rates approach those of patients who have never smoked tobacco. That's awesome. 
Yeah, and it is, it's probably quite heartening to the patients if you can tell, if you do get them three weeks in clinic, three weeks yeah. before in clinic. It's a difficult one, isn't it, with it's smoking? Hard. I definitely ask all patients about it. Yeah. I advise them to stop. Yeah. But a patient that's just been diagnosed with a massive head and neck cancer, if they're not in the headspace to stop, I'm also not going to push them because they've got enough stresses going on in their exactly, life. Exactly, exactly. Personally, I find it's about 50-50. Yeah. You know, some of them have just self-quit because they've been, you know, very scared by their diagnosis yeah. and they want to stop and then others just don't have the psychological headspace to do so but yeah, um, I think yeah. that's an area where sometimes you do need to tread gently mm. I don't think forcing someone to smoke at probably one of the most stressful points in their life is necessarily the smartest thing to do even though we know that outcomes are better surgically I think we just need to be sensitive and yeah, just mention it and give them the information and yeah. offer them support if they do wish to quit exactly mm. but don't judge them if they choose 100%. not to yeah, yeah. absolutely So sticking with preoperative consensus statements, ECS3 says, assessment and management of alcohol withdrawal syndrome reduces the risk of adverse outcomes in this patient population. So alcohol withdrawal is associated with longer lengths of stay, higher costs and higher complication rates in surgical patients. Alcohol cessation pre-surgical admission can reduce post-operative complications, or alternatively, perioperative interventions for symptom management are helpful. And where we work, we would use something called the Alcohol Withdrawal Scale, which is standardised, or the AWS. Mm. Now, on to intraoperative considerations. ECS4 states, patient safety can be improved by the consideration of the performance of an awake airway management technique retaining spontaneous ventilation during the care of this patient population given the high incidence of pathology that can render standard ventilation and intubation difficult or impossible. Now, I think this seems fairly self-evident and we do know that patients undergoing head and neck procedures have a much higher incidence of abnormal airway anatomy. This may be due to previous surgery or radiation, prior surgical procedures or the presence of a tumour. Importantly, these conditions also make our trusty emergency rescue airway access more difficult and prone to failure. That is true. Mm. ECS5. Vasopressors can be used to optimise the hemodynamic management of this patient population after identifying and correcting other hypotension contributing factors, such as hypovolemia, deep anaesthesia, anemia and electrolyte abnormalities. So the authors make the point that historically or traditionally, anaesthetists have avoided vasopressors during head and neck free flap surgery, mm. and I have to say in other flap mm, surgery. I agree. With the thought that the restriction in flow due to the constriction in the vessel diameter was worse for blood flow through the flap than the improvement in the main arterial blood pressure. A review of clinical outcomes, however, has shown no association between flap failure and the use of vasopressors intraoperatively. Oh, that's good to know. Hmm. ECS6 states, optimal monitoring of this patient population includes the use of standard ASA monitors, core temperature monitor, insertion of a Foley catheter to monitor urine output, the placement of an arterial line to monitor hemodynamic parameters, and the monitoring of fluid status metrics such as systolic pressure variation. So this once again is consistent with good practice during surgery, which can be lengthy and potentially associated with electrolyte shifts, blood loss, core temperature loss, and hemodynamic instability. Nothing too controversial there. Nothing scares me yet. (laughs) ECS7 says, a hematocrit maintained at or above 25 may optimise oxygen delivery to free tissue transferred during surgical reconstruction in this patient population. The authors point out that the target haemoglobin level is contentious and highly variable between centres and providers. 
There is little scientific evidence to support specific haemoglobin goals to guide transfusion practices in this patient population beyond that which applies to general patients. The expert group has suggested a slightly higher hematocrit than the general patient population using the three times rule, Mm. where a hematocrit of 25 roughly equals a haemoglobin of 75. I must say I personally would take this one with a grain of salt in the Australian context and stick with the principles of responsible blood management consistent with the Australian Red Cross guidelines and the patient blood management guidelines. Mm. Mind you, as per usual, in a dynamic surgical setting with a decent amount of operating to go, I probably would start trickling in a bag of packed red cells with a haemoglobin of 75. Anyway, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I'm inclined to agree with you there. I think there's sometimes we need to focus more on a common sense approach and just sort Mm. of close monitoring of the patient rather than chasing specific values for different blood tests. So, yeah, I'm completely in agreement. Yeah, I think I think usually during a procedure, um, you're not going to sort of wait for it to go to 69 exactly. or 68 before I start giving yeah. a little bit of blood in, you know, halfway through an operation. Yeah. yeah, sometimes I like to practice proactive rather than reactive anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Now, ECS8 is fluid overload may increase the risk of free flap failure in this patient population. There are hypotheses in the literature that free tissue is particularly sensitive to the negative effects of edema and venous engorgement. And for this, the authors recommend assessing and treating other contributors to hypotension such as anemia, electrolyte abnormalities or excessive anesthesia. ACS9 states multimodal pain management strategies may enhance pain control during the care of this patient population. Consistent with other surgical populations, there is some evidence for benefit in combining multiple analgesic agents with regards to better pain management, reduced side effects and a shorter length of hospital stay. Additionally, this may reduce long-term opioid dependency. The authors reference a study where the prevalence of persistent post-operative opioid use was 18% mm. in previously opioid-naive head and neck cancer patients, which mm. is quite astounding. Yeah, that's not insignificant. And now we're on to the post-operative considerations. So ECS10 states, communication between the anesthesia and surgical team is encouraged when making a plan for extubation and potential reintubation for this patient population. So similar to the recommendations for intubation, head and neck cancer patients may have difficult airways to begin with which can be compounded by extensive surgical procedures which may cause bleeding a hematoma edema and tissue swelling emergent reintubation and icu admission is a risk in the immediate post-operative period it's something to be mindful of mm-hmm. ecs 11 says Communicating management consideration and airway anatomical changes through the medical record, handoffs or signage may reduce the risk of airway-related adverse events in this patient population. So as always, it is important to have clear communication between the anesthesia, surgical and the post-operative care teams, covering any anatomical changes during the surgery, such as a tracheostomy or laryngectomy, and a plan for subsequent airway management should it be required, including the availability of suitable clinicians and equipment. This also includes the details of difficult airway management being recorded in the medical record. Mm. Now we're almost there. So on to ECS-12, an anaesthetic plan that includes early extubation or weaning from ventilatory support can reduce post-operative pneumonia, ICU and hospital length of stay in this patient population. This is in contrast to some historical practices of continued post-operative mechanical ventilation and extubation in the intensive care unit. Basically, if possible, it's good to wake these patients up in theatre as usual. 
Yeah, we certainly aim to uh, where I work, and we're quite lucky that we have a ward that's used to taking these patients. Mm, that's great. That have had these bigger head and neck procedures, so there's no need for them to go to ICU. Mm, that's and so the temptation to leave them intubated is, is much <laughs> less when you don't have an ICU bed, I guess. That's fair <laughs> enough. That's fair enough. Um, ECS 13 says, post-operative care of this patient population requires specialised care and monitoring to ensure flap survival and patient recovery. This may involve dedicated patient care areas with appropriately skilled staff to allow early recognition of flap impairment. This will enable early intervention to enhance flap survival. Dedicated staff will also monitor patient well-being in areas such as nutritional support and psychological well-being. And we are down to our last recommendation, ECS 14, which states the post-operative care of this patient population can be delivered either in an intensive care or a floor setting with appropriate monitoring and skilled nursing. So in Australia, we'd probably say a ward rather than a floor setting, but there may even be benefits to care in a ward setting over an ICU setting, both for patient outcomes and in reducing costs and length of stay without an increase in complications. That's Well, that's it. That's the end of the consensus statement. Nice yeah. and short and sweet. So, Kate, what did you make of it? Look, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't informed of anything sort of – well, there was nothing earth-shattering that I had never really thought about before in doing ENT surgery. And I'll add the caveat that the last time I did anesthesia for ear, nose and throat surgery, it was in 2017 when I was working overseas. <laughs> so, it's been a while. But even thinking back to when I was doing it more regularly then – for the most part, we were doing the same sort of thing that has been recommended in these guidelines. So it's really reassuring to know that, mm. you know, that we're we're on the right track. There are some little things that I find really reassuring, specifically about the vasoconstrictors in mm. flaps and flap mm. survival. I mm. find that really nice. And if I'm doing ENT anesthesia for ENT surgery in the future, I probably won't be as hesitant to use vasopressors mm. as long as it's appropriate. In honesty, I'll probably still try and minimise it, but I won't be as scared to reach for the metaraminol mm. as I have been previously, which yep. is good. So how about you? What did you make of these? Yeah, so look, I happen to work somewhere where we do these sort of procedures nearly every day and therefore I would get rostered on one head and neck free flap maybe every few months and yeah. then we, we do a lot of other types of free flap surgery as well. Yeah. Um, so look, overall I found these guidelines consistent with my practice as well as those of my institution and therefore somewhat reassuring. Excellent. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of this stuff is a consensus statement and a Delphi kind of method agreement yeah. rather than evidence-based. But looking back, I think we could probably do a little more in the preoperative phase to assess nutrition and encourage yeah. tobacco cessation although the head and neck um, surgeons usually do a great job of actually sorting this out with the yeah. dietitians. yeah and they actually mm. have they have those several weeks in advance of surgery That's to be right. able to address that often we see these patients the week of Correct. or sometimes unluckily the day before mm -hmm. so it's common it's yeah. hard to implement a lot of these sort of lifestyle changes when you have less than 24 hours before mm. the surgery so a lot of them are already kind of referred for you know assistance before yeah. we see them yeah um i agree with you the section regarding vasopressors was interesting as yeah. i had been taught as a registrar to try to eliminate vasopressor yeah, use, yeah. not that I always can. So um, <laughs> it's good to know that there is, you know, no evidence for this. And in fact, compensating with too much fluid might be a bad thing as mm. well. So yeah, I agree. Some limited use of vasopressor is necessary. It's mm. nice to know you're not going to cause any harm to the flap. Yes. Um, so no, look, I think it's a really nice, concise sense of statements. It's something good to have something because there wasn't yeah. a lot in the literature yeah, beforehand. Yeah, that's so true, 100%. Um, and look, acknowledging that, you know, obviously you do what you're, particularly you're a registrar, you talk to your bosses before <laughs> implementing any of this. Of course. Uh, and you, you know, you look at your own institution, particularly with regards to post-operative care. You know, you might ICU may be the most appropriate place for these patients in your institution. So yes. don't start just sending them to the ward because someone said so. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> some <laughs> random podcast voice. Yeah, exactly. It's like doing a financial disclaimer, isn't it? Um, 
so look, uh, there's only one thing left to cover this week, and um, that is, Kate, what have you learned in anesthesia? Well, this week I did anesthesia for a surgical procedure that frankly I'd never even heard of until the day before when I got my list of patients that I was doing. Mm. So the procedure I'm referring to is a TAMIS procedure. Now TAMIS stands for Transanal Minimally Invasive Surgery. So the clinical situation that I had was a patient with, it was actually a very large polyp with some cellular Mm. metaplastic changes or dysplastic, I can't remember. Um, And this particular patient had a polyp that was low enough that a TAMIS procedure was appropriate. Mm. And the beauty of the TAMIS procedure is because everything occurs transanally, you don't have to deal with laparoscopic port sites, typical surgical Mm. wounds. It's a significantly lower impact surgery on the patient and they tend to do really well. So everything was done through the anus. So part of the bowel was actually resected and then obviously Mm -hmm. the remaining the remaining portion of bowel was stitched back together. Again, all through all through ports that went into the anus. Um, the whole thing lasted for less than an hour. It was all very unexciting, which is exactly the way I like my surgery. And sh- this particular patient woke up really well. Great. Yeah, but yeah. I'd, I'd never heard of it before and I mm. had to do some, some well-placed Googling before <laughs> I took <laughs> care of that patient too. So it does still happen. Who knew? How about you, Kate? What have you learned this week in anesthesia? Uh, well, look, you know, and this is going to date this podcast a little bit, but we are in the midst <laughs> of a COVID pandemic still in early 2022. Uh, and look, everyone's under pressure. Everyone's stressed. You know, we've got staffing shortages left, right and centre. And it's just the principle of trying to understand where everybody is at. Yeah. Uh, it can be frustrating if you need something done or you want to try to be efficient. Uh, but just yeah, just be understanding, be kind. Yeah, that's and, um, true. If someone's having a bad day, there can be a lot going on under the surface that you're mm. not aware of. So just be be kind to each other. Yeah, it's be a kind to yourself time. as well. Difficult time for everybody, I think. So just uh, yeah, chill mm. out if you can, mm. <laughs> and take good care of the patients. Absolutely. Well, that's all we have time for this week on deep breaths. As always, you can reach us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love hearing all of your suggestions for future topics and possible guests to approach, so please keep the emails coming. And don't forget to claim CPD if you can. You can find us on most major podcasting platforms, including Apple and Spotify, and following us makes it easier to find new episodes. We'll be back in two weeks, and until then, thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.